part one of chapter six of the second volume of the life of reason this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by gabriel v the life of reason by george santayana chapter six free society part one side note primacy of nature over spirit natural society unites beings in time and space it fixes affection on those creatures on which we depend and to which our action must be adapted natural society begins at home and radiates over the world as more and more things become tributary to our personal being in marriage and the family in industry government and war attention is riveted on temporal existences on the fortunes of particular bodies natural or corporate there is then a primacy of nature over spirit in social life and this primacy in a certain sense endures to the end since all spirit must be the spirit of something and reason could not exist or be conceived at all unless a material organism personal or social lay beneath to give thought an occasion and a point of view and to give preference a direction things could not be near or far worse or better unless a definite life were taken as a standard a life lodged somewhere in space and time reason is a principle of order appearing in a subject matter which in its subsistence and quantity must be an irrational datum reason expresses purpose purpose expresses impulse and impulse expresses a natural body with self-equilibrating powers at the same time natural growths may be called achievements only because when formed they support a joyful and liberal experience nature's works first acquire a meaning in the commentaries they provoke mechanical processes have interesting climaxes only from the point of view of the life that expresses them in which their ebb and flow grows impassioned and vehement nature's values are imputed to her retroactively by spirit which in its material dependence has a logical and moral primacy of its own in themselves events are perfectly mechanical steady and fluid not stopping where we see a goal nor avoiding what we call failures and so they would always have remained in crude experience if no cumulative reflection no art and no science had come to dominate and foreshorten that equable flow of substance arresting it ideally in behalf of some rational interest thus it comes to pass that rational interests have a certain ascendancy in the world as well as an absolute authority over it for they arise where an organic equilibrium has naturally established itself such an equilibrium maintains itself by virtue of the same necessity that produced it without arresting the flux or introducing any miracle it sustains in being an ideal form this form is what consciousness corresponds to and raises to actual existence so that significant thoughts are something which nature necessarily lingers upon and seems to serve the being to whom they come is most widely based and synthetic of her creatures the mind spreads and soars in proportion 
as the body feeds on the surrounding world. Noble ideas, although rare and difficult to attain, are not naturally fugitive. Side note, all experience at bottom liberal. Consciousness is not ideal merely in its highest phases. It is ideal through and through. On one level, as much as on another, it celebrates an attained balance in nature or grieves at its collapse. It prophesizes and remembers. It loves and dreams. It sees even nature from the point of view of ideal interests and measures the flux of things by ideal standards. It registers its own movement, like that of its objects, entirely in ideal terms, looking to fix goals of its own imagining, and using nothing in the operation but concretions in discourse. Primary mathematical notions, for instance, are evidences of a successful reactive method attained in the organism and translated in consciousness into a stable grammar which has wide applicability and great persistence, so that it has come to be elaborated ideally into prodigious abstract systems of thought. Every experience of victory, eloquence, or beauty is a momentary success of the same kind, and if repeated and sustained becomes a spiritual possession. Side note, social experience has its ideality too. Society also breeds its ideal harmonies. At first, it establishes affections between beings naturally conjoined in the world. Later, it grows sensitive to free and spiritual affinities, to oneness of mind and sympathetic purposes. These ideal affinities, although grounded like the others on material relations, for sympathy presupposes communication, do not have those relations for their theme but rest on them, merely as on a pedestal from which they look away to their own realm, as music, while sustained by vibrating instruments, looks away from them to its own universe of sound. Side note, the self and ideal. Ideal society is a drama enacted exclusively in the imagination. Its personages are all mythical, beginning with that brave protagonist who calls himself I, and speaks all the soliloquies. When most nearly material these personages are human souls, the ideal life of particular bodies, or floating mortal reputations, echoes of those ideal lives in one another. From this relative substantiality they fade into notions of country, prosperity, humanity, and the gods. These figures all represent some circle of events or forces in the real world. But such representation, besides being mythical, is usually most inadequate. The boundaries of that province which each spirit presides over are vaguely drawn, the spirit itself being correspondingly indefinite. This ambiguity is most conspicuous, perhaps, in the most absorbing of the personages which a man constructs in this imaginative fashion, his idea of himself. There is society where none intrudes, and for most men, sympathy with their imaginary selves is a powerful and dominant emotion. True memory offers but a meager and interrupted vista of past experience, 
yet even that picture is far too rich a term for mental discourse to bandy about. A name with a few physical and social connotations is what must represent the man to his own thinkings. Or rather, it is no memory, however eviscerated, that fulfills that office. A man's notion of himself is a concretion discourse for which his more constant somatic feelings, his ruling interests, and his social relations furnish most of the substance. Side note, romantic egotism. The more reflective and self-conscious a man is, the more completely will his experience be subsumed and absorbed in his perennial I. If philosophy has come to reinforce this reflective egotism, he may even regard all nature as nothing but his half-voluntary dream and encourage himself thereby to give even to the physical world a dramatic and sentimental color. But the more successful he is in stuffing everything into his self-consciousness, the more desolate will the void become which surrounds him. For self is, after all, but one term in a primitive dichotomy and would lose its specific and intimate character were it no longer contrasted with anything else. The egotist must therefore people the desert he has spread about him, and he naturally peoples it with mythical counterparts of himself. Sometimes, if his imagination is sensuous, his alter egos are incarnate in the landscape, and he creates a poetic mythology. Sometimes, when the inner life predominates, they are projected into his own forgotten past or infinite future. He will then say that all experience is really his own and that some inexplicable illusion has momentarily raised opaque partitions in his omniscient mind. Side note, vanity. Philosophers less pretentious and more worldly than these have sometimes felt in their way the absorbing force of self-consciousness. La Rochefoucauld could describe amour propre as the spring of all human sentiments. Amour propre involves preoccupation not merely with the idea of self, but with that idea, reproduced in other men's minds. The soliloquy has become a dialogue, or rather a solo, with an echoing chorus. Interest in one's own social figure is to some extent a material interest. For other men's love or aversion is a principal read into their acts, and a social animal, like man, is dependent on other men's acts for his happiness. An individual's concern for the attitude society takes towards him is therefore, in the first instance, concern for his own practical welfare. But imagination here refines upon worldly interest. What others think of us would be of little moment did it not, when known, so deeply tinge what we think of ourselves. Nothing could better prove the mythical character of self-consciousness than this extreme sensitiveness to alien opinions. For if a man really knew himself, he would utterly despise the ignorant notions others might form on a subject in which he had such matchless opportunities for observation. Indeed, those opinions would hardly seem to him directed upon the reality at all, 
and he would laugh at them as he might at the stock fortune-telling of some itinerant gypsy. As it is, however, the last breath of irresponsible and anonymous censure lashes our self-esteem and sometimes quite transforms our plans and affections. The passions grafted on wounded pride are the most inveterate. They are green and vigorous in old age. We crave support in vanity, as we do in religion, and never forgive contradictions in that sphere. For however persistent and passionate such prejudices may be, we know too well that they are woven of thin air. A hostile word by starting a contrary imaginative current buffets them rudely and threatens to dissolve their being. Side note, ambiguities of fame. The highest form of vanity is love of fame. It is a passion, easy to deride, but hard to understand, and in men who live at all by imagination, almost impossible to eradicate. The good opinion of posterity can have no possible effect on our fortunes, and the practical value which reputation may temporarily have is quite absent in posthumous fame. The direct object of this passion, that a name should survive in men's mouths, to which no adequate idea of its original can be attached, seems a thin and fantastic satisfaction, especially when we consider how little we should probably sympathize with the creatures that are to remember us. What comfort would it be to Virgil that boys still read him at school, or to Pindar that he is sometimes mentioned in a world from which everything he loved has departed? Yet beneath this desire for nominal longevity, apparently so inane, there may lurk an ideal ambition of which the ancients cannot have been unconscious when they set so high a value on fame. They often identified fame with immortality, a subject on which they had far more rational sentiments than have since prevailed. End of chapter 6, part 1